You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 28th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Guy Delaunay. Coming up on today's programme, tech titans in trouble as Apple and Tesla shares take a tumble. We'll find out why and what next. Plus... Lech is famous for the gourmet food and these young creative chefs. And as we know, you know, food, it's art. We'll be taking a trip to the Austrian Alps, where the village of Lech is adding art to its mix of skiing and scoffing. And we'll be catching up with the headlines in Latin America and all the latest film news. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Guy Delaunay. Well, first cryptocurrency crashed, now tech stocks are tumbling. Giants of the industry, like Apple, are facing fresh manufacturing delays amid a mass outbreak of COVID-19 in China. Nearly a fifth of the entire population there has contracted the virus. Now, companies had already been struggling to keep production going in China due to COVID restrictions and weeks of lockdowns. Overnight, Apple shares hit their lowest point since June 2021, and Tesla's stock has dropped dropped 73% from its record high in November 2021. Well, let's unpack this with Victoria Scholar, the head of investment at Interactive Investment, Interactive Investor. Victoria, welcome to the briefing. These are quite extraordinary drops in valuations for these companies. Does it reflect something more than just the, the, the local difficulties, if you like, of production in China? Yes, absolutely, it does. We've seen a big slide in the whole of big technology stateside this year. Uh, and Apple is down by about 30%. And we've seen Meta, another tech stock, down heavily as well. And the reason why we've seen a shift away from technology is that investors have been shifting away from growth stocks towards more defensive assets instead because of rising interest rates and rising inflation, which have dampened the appetite for some of these names. Now, the tech sector was very much in favour for a really long time, underpinned by rock-bottom interest rates, which helped to spur growth for a number of these names. But we've seen this sea change at the start of the year with the shift towards higher interest rates as central banks tried to combat inflation. So that's why we've seen this big move away from the likes of Tesla and Apple and others. This is really going to hit people who are just exposed in even a minor way to, you know, if they've just got an an exchange track around the S&P 500 or something like that. They're going to be getting hammered because, you know, Apple, Tesla, Meta, they make up a big chunk of that index. Yeah, they really do. And because tech stocks were performing so well for so many years, there's been an an increasing amount of exposure towards that sector. And it was very much a winning trade and a winning investment for many years. But that has really shifted this year. And I think investors are now starting to catch up and realise that technology is not necessarily the place to be, at least in the short term, um, while inflation is still very high and while central banks are still having to raise interest rates. Then on top of that, we've got the complications in China Mm. um, with its rising COVID cases, which have impacted Apple's uh, supplier factory, Foxconn. Um, So there are concerns that there's going to be less iPhones available to the world. And then with Tesla, it's got its own problems as well, because Elon Musk, as we know, with his 
his acquisition of Twitter has arguably taken his eye a bit off the ball this year. Well, I'd like to say I'm the one who made money out of Elon Musk because I made $80 on Twitter shares. You'd be pleased to hear. <laughs> uh, but, but let's stick with stick with Apple for the, the minute, Victoria. Because, uh, yeah. you know, they've been trying to, not exactly nearshore, but they've been trying to diversify their production, haven't they? I think it's uh, Vietnam they've shifted some production to. They've been looking at India as well. Perhaps not moving fast enough. Yeah, you're right. This is a big shift that we've seen um, amid many companies that have had their factories in China for a long time. We're starting to see a lot of companies move away from China to neighboring countries um, like Taiwan or Vietnam, as you mentioned, to try and diversify that supply chain. Because post-pandemic, there were a lot of issues with the global supply chain. And then on top of that, China has had this zero tolerance to COVID approach, which has been very damaging to its economy. Um, And we thought that China was going to be catching up with the US and become uh, the world's largest economy in the next few years. But it looks like that's no longer going to be the case uh, because of these draconian measures that have ultimately cost uh, the economy greatly. So from a very prosaic and personal point of view, is this literally why when I went the other day to pick up an SE 2022 (laughs) iPhone um, in a shop in Slovenia, is that why I couldn't get one? Possibly. It could be. Um, We know that there have been issues with the production of the latest iPhone. Uh, We know that a lot of people have struggled to get the latest model. Um, And it looks as though those production issues are here to stay, at least in the short term as we head into next year. But as Apple Apple longer term tries to move away from China in terms of its factories, and potentially as China alleviate some of these COVID restrictions, that could also help. But, you know, China's in a tough spot because on the one hand, it's trying to ease off those COVID restrictions and open up its economy, which we're learning about more and more each week. But on the other hand, we're seeing increasing number of infections. Um, So that's going to really test the resolve Mm. of the authorities to loosen its COVID policies. So whether or not it then ultimately goes back to that zero approach, zero tolerance approach is yet to be seen. But it's going to be a difficult time for China, I think. Tesla's in a particularly tough spot. I mean, we can talk about Elon Musk and his interesting personality all we like, but when we look <laughs> at when we look at his, their production, I mean, they've got production in China. They've also got a lot of their consumers based in China. However, they're also facing strong competition from domestic producers of electric cars in China. So the, the whole thing for Tesla and the way it's built its business in China is, is looking fairly rocky. Yeah, I think it's a different problem to the supply chain issue that Apple's facing. Tesla is potentially facing a demand issue. Um, As you mentioned, there's a lot of competition in China from other EV players like Neo being uh, the big one. Uh, And then, of course, with the global economic slowdown with potential recessions around the world, that's likely to reduce demand for cars into next year. Uh, And then, of course, there are so many incumbent vehicle Mm. uh, manufacturers in the world that are all desperately trying to get a slice of this EV pie as we shift towards the electric revolution. So although Tesla was very much the first mover, there is a lot of competition and increasing competition as we head into the coming years. I mean, it's interesting that Tesla do try and flog their cars as a premium product and they price them accordingly. And some of the ways in which they work is wonderful, like the the charging network and the, the, the maps which show you where you've got to charge if you plan your journey out in one of the cars. But, you know, the cars themselves, frankly, when it comes to the driving experience, aren't particularly special if you compare them to a product by Renault, by Volkswagen. And those companies are selling cars for less than half the price. 
Yeah, absolutely. And price sensitivity is increasingly important as we head towards an economic slowdown. We know about the cost of living crisis that's squeezing household budgets. And then on the business side, inflation means that costs are going up. So that's squeezing their margins. Yeah, so I think that a lot of other car makers like Ford and others are looking at Tesla and seeing what they did right and almost trying to emulate the business model, but perhaps at a cheaper price point, which arguably could be rolled out at a more mass scale. And these shares of Tesla have lost three quarters of their value in the space of a year. Now, how much of that can we ascribe to uh, Mr. Musk's interesting personality and how much of that to the fundamentals we've just been talking about? Well, we've seen a particularly big slide in the shares since October, since Musk's takeover of Twitter, suggesting that a serious portion of that (laughs) is down to um, Elon Musk and the fact that he has been selling billions of dollars worth of Tesla shares. You know, typically, if we see a CEO selling his shares in the company, it's not a sign of confidence at all. And often, C-suite members are very cautious to do so because of what it signals to other investors. Um, So I'd say that the whole Twitter situation is definitely wrapped up in the decline in the share price. I think Elon Musk got overconfident. You know, we saw this meteoric rise in Tesla's share price during the pandemic, up by something like 1,600% of the lows. And it felt as though he had the Midas touch, as though he was invincible. Mm. Um, But the fact that he has spread himself so thinly, remember, he's got other companies as well. He's got SpaceX, he's got the Boring Company, he's got Neuralink. Um, does suggest that he might not have that much uh, time or it hasn't been focusing that much really on Tesla at the moment. And I think that those the selling of those shares doesn't really give a very good impression either. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Victoria. That was Victoria Scholar. Now here's Laura Kramer with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Guy. Russian forces have fired some 33 rockets at civilian targets in Kherson as fighting in the strategically important city intensifies. More than 400 people have left since strikes on Christmas Day, with a line of cars forming at the checkpoints leading out of the city and others taking to leave by train. Ethiopia's national carrier, Ethiopian Airlines, has resumed commercial flights to the war-torn region of Tigray after a shutdown lasting 18 months. The change comes a day after an Ethiopian delegation made the first high-level government visit to the rebel-held region since the signing of a peace deal last month. Taiwan will test arrivals from China for COVID-19 from the 1st of January in response to a surge in cases there. It joins other countries in stepping up controls on people coming from China. Beijing is preparing to issue ordinary passports and visas in a huge step away from COVID measures that have isolated the country for nearly three years. And scientists in the United States have developed a blood test to diagnose Alzheimer's disease without the need for expensive brain imaging or a painful lumbar puncture. Alzheimer's is the most common form of dementia, but diagnosis remains challenging, particularly during the earlier stages of the disease. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Guy. Thanks, Laura. And now to Buenos Aires, where Monocle's Latin Affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott is joining us to give us a roundup of stories from the region. Welcome back to the briefing, Lucinda. And uh, you spent Christmas in Uruguay, didn't you? Yes, I'm actually still here, Guy. So, so, yeah, I'm still in Montevideo. It's very quiet. It's a lovely beach. So, yeah, lovely to be with you today. Fabulous. And uh, while you're there, you're keeping an eye on this political scandal over passports being flogged off to Russian citizens. And uh, that's having an impact on the popularity of the president. 
Yeah, so this story, Guy, dates back to September, actually, when the president's bodyguard was arrested over allegations that he forged passports for possibly hundreds of Russians and other nationalities so that they could move freely in Europe and apply for visas in the US. Um, Uruguayans have few restrictions, actually, when traveling and can stay up to six months in most European countries. And during the investigation, more and more has come to light via the bodyguard's phone. So sort of reams of WhatsApp chats and conversations being exchanged between him and possibly other members of the president's cabinet that could reveal a wider issue of corruption actually in Uruguay and problems with its institutions. And this is obviously in a country that generally is considered the sort of well-behaved child in a badly behaved class, a region of Latin America. And that's why it's drawing more attention, really. So actually, we're not talking about, you know, dodgy golden visas, invest half a million and we'll give you a, a passport sort of thing. This is actual forgery of passports. Yes. Yeah, so this the idea was that he had access using obviously his, his close relationship to the president and, and possibly the foreign ministry. But he made these forged documents that said that these people had Uruguayan parents and in fact these people were deceased and these people did not have Uruguayan parents but that automatically gave them Uruguayan nationality so no this is nothing to do with with investments whatsoever Um, and as I say it dates back possibly to as far back as 2013 but because since obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine and we've seen many many more Russians fleeing um, that's what's really sort of why why it's sort of been building and why eventually you know, this man was arrested as well as um, a few other uh, officials as well. There's, is there any chance of the, the, the president paying the ultimate price for this? Well, for the minute, Lakaipo's popularity, I mean, I just say broadly, he, during the pandemic and, and subsequently, you know, in the years post, you know, in, in the aftermath of the pandemic, his popularity is held pretty steady compared to other leaders um, in the region. It has taken a slight hit because it's not only the passports. The conversations released actually as part of a, a separate investigation also allege that members of his cabinet were helping a wanted drug trafficker escape arrest. So, you know, it's all sort of all building at the same time and all of this coming to light through exchanges via via the, the social media platform WhatsApp. So obviously be very careful what you what you send on there. In, indeed. Never put anything in electronic form that you wouldn't want the world to know. Exactly, exactly. Is how's the media reporting this in, in, in Uruguay? Are they, you know, friendly to the president or is it, you know, one of these cases where they you know they've 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 scented blood and they're going in for the kill? Well, actually, particularly linked to the, this wanted drug trafficker who escaped arrest, I mean, it's actually thanks to the media in Uruguay that any of these conversations were revealed. Um, this case was the revelations that two undersecretaries appeared to know that a man accused of trafficking cocaine between Paraguay and Europe um, wanted a Uruguayan passport applied and then actually gave him one, knowing he was possibly a threat. This man, Sebastian Marcet, He's in his early 30s and he was caught in Dubai last year using forged Paraguayan documents. Um, and he waited for one from his home nation of Uruguay and managed to leave the UAE totally legally on this document. So one of those undersecretaries has stood down. But the real issue, obviously, is with high levels of government where it looks like you know, they were possibly involved or at least knew of the matter. And Lakai, as president, is, you know, for the minute has kept, for example, the foreign minister and interior minister in their in their roles until the full investigation is 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 over. But, you know, there is there are being questions, obviously, you know, why is he 
possibly protecting them or why is this case not being taken mm. maybe as seriously as one might ought to be but yes definitely the media has played a has played a very important role in all of this. And you mentioned the the reputation that Uruguay has for being the sensible one uh, in in Latin America. Uh, You know, small country, what is it, three and a half million people or so? But, um, you know, if you've got these passports being issued fraudulently and people are using them to gain visa-free access to countries like the United States, uh, are those countries like the United States maybe rethinking what they think of Uruguay? Well, certainly, I think I think the bigger concern is how he, as Lacayapo, is a leader, but also how Uruguay's institutions, its judiciary, deal with this passport case. You know, will they uh, be transparent? Will will punishments be doled out? Will the president hand over, for example, his his own phone if there aren't answers? You know, and 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 then subsequently, you know. Um, there could be huge levels of public trust could be lost and its international reputation could take a hit that could take years to recover. We see that weakness and mistrust in places like Colombia and Brazil that don't have such relaxed visa requirements. You only have to look at, you know, very recently in Brazil itself, where there were claims that the election was fraudulent and that the electoral authority is corrupt. So we don't see that in Uruguay. And so that's why um, these recent allegations are so important. And that's why it's so important to sort of keep an eye on what the judiciary ultimately do. Now, the sky blue of Uruguay didn't do particularly well in the World Cup, went out the group stage. Uh, Neighbouring Argentina went all the way in their sky blue and white shirts. um, And they've been uh, reaping the rewards in terms of shirts. Well, certainly, guys. So there have been record sales of Argentina's new football shirt that will that has three stars for each World, uh-huh. World Cup that it, that it has won. Um, I mean, I think it's very actually, funny to see the England shirt with one star. It does look a bit sad and lonely, doesn't it? It, it does look a bit sad, doesn't it? So, but yeah, record sales of these of these of these um, of the strip that you know was. I think it's Adidas who's the yeah. main sponsor. Um, but the currency on the, the the Argentine currency on the widely used black market has plummeted against the dollar this week to around 350 pesos to the dollar. I mean, when I was there for the World Cup final, it was around 310. So, despite obviously you you know seeing uh, you know very positive you know outpouring of optimism um, with this World Cup tournament, it shows that there's very little confidence in the economy, and most analysts predict that the currency will fall further to hit around 400 pesos to the dollar in January. So despite needing much more money, basically, to get hold of these three-star shirts, um, they've, they've flown off the shelves. I would say at this point, I've just uh, had a quick check about Uruguay. I wondered if they had two stars on their shirt. And it turns out they've got four because they count their Olympic wins in 24 and 28, as well as their two World Cup wins. So uh, take that, Argentina. Um, thank, <laughs> thanks very much for joining us from Montevideo. Lucinda Elliott, who's Monocle's Latin Affairs correspondent. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. 12.19 here in London. This is indeed the briefing on Monocle 24. And let's head now to the Austrian Alps. That's where the winter resort of Lech is hoping to pr- promote culture in an area best known for its skiing, posh nosh and gourmet restaurants and highfalutin clientele. Monocle's correspondent Ivan Carvalho ventured to Lech to hear from those who want to put this alpine village on the art world's radar. In the cold months of winter, the sleepy town of Lech, nestled in the mountain region of Arburg, becomes a gathering spot for the well-to-do, who enjoy getting out on the slopes and dining out at the resort's many fashionable restaurants. 
but there's another side to Lek that locals are eager to present, one dedicated to the arts. Site-specific installations from the likes of British sculptor Anthony Gormley have thought of the landscape in the past, but today the key cultural conversation piece is an installation designed by American artist James Terrell. Nestled in the mountainside at 1,800 meters, I entered the space on a recent winter evening with the temperature hovering around minus 15 Celsius. I was accompanied by René Ute of the Horizon Field Association. So uh, now you can see we are entering the sky space. And when you look back, the entrance uh, is directed uh, towards this uh, mountain. It's called the Biberkopf. And I noticed that, that that mountain is like a pyramid shape. Yeah. So that was the, important to him. Yes. Uh, it's very important to Sorel studied mathematics, for example. Um, and um, so mathematics and geometric forms are very important in his uh, work. Okay, so here we are now in his sky space. Yeah, that's the sky space here in Lech. And uh, one thing uh, which is very special about the sky space here in Lech is that we have the dome, the movable dome. Uh, it was necessary because um, of all the snow that is coming in winter, and so we had, had to have a possibility to close it. So James Turrell constructed a sky space with a movable dome. Part of Turrell's Sky Space series, the piece consists of an observatory with a movable dome, where inside people sit along a circular black granite bench and observe above the play of natural light at sunrise and sunset from the oval opening in the roof. After dusk, there is an impressive light installation that bathes the walls and ceiling in a changing pattern of colored lights. Back in town, I paid a visit to Hotel Christiania, where I was greeted by owner Gertrude Schneider. Opened by her father, an Olympic ski champion, the hotel today is a venue that doubles as an art gallery. So this is our gallery space. It's our art garage. And um, the concept started in summer 2020 to support art and culture. And I asked a um, gallerist if he would join in. And he said immediately yes. So we changed from a garage into an art garage. And now contemporary art, this is something that's been your passion for a long time. Yeah, it's actually our family's passion. Already my grandmother and her siblings, they were art collectors. And my mother is a big art collector. So that's how I was brought up. It's part of our lifestyle and the way of living, I would say. Schneider works with Vienna Gallery Sturm and Schrober to offer a new exhibition each winter to guests and curious outsiders. Uh, on one side we have not a garage with, um, with the gallerist, yeah? and on the other side we have intervent- interventions in the hotel by certain artists and the collection of my mother. So in one of the dining rooms we have this Colombian artist called Beatriz Solano. She made um, a more architectural in intervention with tapes and her pieces of art. But then in the, one of the dining rooms, it's still my mother's collection with uh, Karl Gerstner or Liechtenstein. So you have this nice Liechtenstein while you enjoy breakfast and a few on Lech. 
And then in the hallways you have Marsha Hafif or Max Cole, uh, Sven Brown, and these are all my uh, mother's collection. Yeah, and they change. My mother comes like once per year and changes the art around. Schneider is also interested in raising Lex's profile and hopes to put on an event like Freeze to host collectors and gallery owners. You know, Lech is famous for the gourmet food and these young creative chefs. And as we know, you know, food and the chefs, they're also, it's art, yeah? And also a documenter, they already invited chef, famous chefs to be part of. So I think the art and culture fits very well with this gourmet uh, village, yeah? Schneider already has plans for next summer to engage guests with a more interactive type of hospitality that involves them more in cultural activities as she continues her efforts to make Lek a key gathering spot for art lovers. For Monocle, in Lek, I'm Ivan Carvalho. And thanks to Ivan for that report. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Every week, the Bulletin with UBS goes behind the numbers and the hype to explain what's really happening in the world of finance. Brought to you from the desks of the key analysts at UBS and experts from all around the world, the programme delivers definitive insights into the people, places and products set to shape the week ahead. This is a show that explains how a fast-moving financial world really works. So, set your agenda for the week ahead. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS each week on Monocle 24 or download the latest episode right now at monocle.com via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The Bulletin with UBS. Now, welcome back to the briefing on Monocle 24. In about three seconds' time, it'll be 12.26 here in London. Right about now. Bam. There we go. And finally, on today's edition of the show, let's find out all about the latest going on in the world of film. Joining us now is film, TV and culture commentator Ashanti Omkar. Uh, welcome back to the briefing, Ashanti. And I've been looking at your list of things to consider here, and I've alighted on Riches, uh, which uh, I see has been described in at least one review as a salacious drama. Uh, tell us more. Indeed, indeed. Well, Riches completely captured my heart because I grew up in Nigeria before moving to the UK when I was 12. And I never got to see rich black people on screen, or I rarely mm. got to see them. When Empire came out, I was excited about it because they were going to show us the sort of people I grew up with. I lived on a university campus, you know, and, and I grew up with rich black people. So we didn't get to see those stories. And here it is, six parts on ITV and on Prime Video for those globally to see this this one family where they have a cosmetics empire there are two wives and one this one powerful husband who has passed away what happens after he passes away who does he give his money to and how do they fight mm. it out is is what we're we're getting to see with this and it's very very exciting we're getting to see a little bit of nigerian culture also because abi ajayi who has made this is a is a british nigerian who's moved to america to kind of make her fortune she's worked mm. on on things like uh, you know uh, 
well, she's she, she's worked on lots of very big, big things like How to Get Away with Murder. And this one is really exciting. It's it's a bit like Succession in many ways, but with a black family and with, with dark skinned women, which again is something we rarely see on screen. It's not the first time, is it, that black British talent has moved to the United States to to make them, you know, a big splash. You, you do hear black British stars saying that they seem to get you know, greater opportunities and more star opportunities in the US than they do here. A hundred percent. I have spoken to so many uh, talents uh, in recent times, Wumi Masaku, David Oyelowo, all of them are moving to the US because there are more opportunities. But it's nice to see a show like this that is set in London mm. and bringing back some of that talent who moved, you know, who moved across the pond and saying, we're going to put them all together and give you something that is really exciting. It's like watching Dynasty, you know, but with black people, which I think is just really rarely seen. I do like the fact that the name of the business, I've, I've, I've got this right because I haven't seen it, but uh, if, if I'm correct about this, the name of the business is Flair and Glory. Yes, yes, indeed. And we have seen, you know, like I have grown up as a girl in London who just could not get foundation to match my skin tone. And then there were few kind of black, uh, you know, it was actually black makeup that I started to wear as I couldn't find those colors to match me from what was available in Debenhams, for example. And it's really nice that they've actually brought that also because it's giving a lot of layers to the political conversation that this, this show brings. I'm, do you know, right now, I've got the soundtrack going through my head. I don't know if you know the song Highlights by Charlotte Adigieri. Do you know that? Yes. Yeah, that's that's going through my head now. And I, I don't know whether it's um, it, it's 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 acrylic hair that we're talking about here or natural products or what. But um, that, you've now got the rather good song going through my head. So I thank you for that. <laughs> um, let's uh, let's move on to A Man Called Otto, uh, yes. which is, you know, the return of uh, Tom Hanks. Does he ever go away? He doesn't really, does he? There's never Tom Hanks comeback. He's re he's a perennial. He's Mr. Reliable. Absolutely he is. I mean, he was in, in Elvis giving us a role that we would never have expected to come from him. And then we see him as Otto. And it's very rare to see Tom Hanks playing this kind of cantankerous type character. But he brings his A-game to this film. But let me just tell you that the two people who will steal your hearts in this is is not just just Tom because mm. Tom obviously is is amazing. Ma Mar Mariana Trevino, who's in this, she is absolutely fabulous. She's holding her own with Tom Hanks. She plays a woman who, in some ways, is trying to cheer up this man who just wants to take his life. He's fed up with life. His wife has passed away. He's he's constantly very angry with 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 everything. And this family move next door to him. Him. and Mariana is is the kind of matriarch of that family and then there's his son who Truman who mm. worked as a DOP you know he was a cinematographer and and didn't really have much of a, a role in in cinema till now and you see him playing playing his dad the younger version of his dad and he just lights up the screen from the minute he appears and Rita Wilson Tom Hanks wife also is the producer of this film. She's also written a song for this film. And it's, it's, it's a bit of a family affair in many ways. This is a, a film that already, you know, it, it we a lot of us might have seen it before because it was a Swedish film that did really, really well. And it's an adaptation from, from a novel uh, called uh, A Man Called Ove. And it's really nice that they've used the same, you know, the same kind of writers to, to bring this to life, made a few changes here and there and given us a real feel good kind of crowd pleaser is what i would uh, what i would call this 
And I think we've just got about about got time to uh, talk about Whitney Houston, have we? Yes, I'm just looking at Tom, the producer, <laughs> through the through the glass, and he's smiling and thumbs upping. So great! I want to dance with somebody. Uh, is the oh. latest film that we've got about Whitney Houston? What makes this one different? Well, Cassie Lemons is giving this. Uh, a different touch because we've seen a lot of documentaries about Whitney, but seeing this as a kind of biographical musical drama is absolutely fabulous. British actress Naomi Aki comes together with Stanley Tucci. I mean, mm. Stanley Tucci is amazing in everything, and he plays this role with such aplomb as her her manager. And we get to see Whitney Houston's LGBTQIA plus side. It's something that we haven't really got to explore before, but they put it right in front of you from the start of this. Film. Film. So you get to see how she's torn in her life between her faith, between what her parents want from her, between the superstardom that she achieved, and why she had such an untimely demise. I mean, they build it up into a into a way that you're watching this film, thinking, "My gosh, I my heart is, I, you know, my heart is on my sleeve." This yeah, and the problem is, knowing how it ends doesn't make it yes. any more easy to bear, does it? Absolutely. I mean, for me, I grew up with her music. I used to sing, you know, sing her songs in school. And I was I, I was crying so much watching this. But at the same time, I was so moved and so impressed by how Naomi Aki brings Whitney Houston to life. She doesn't really look like her, but she gives us a Whitney Houston that will stay with us. So that's three to watch. I want to dance with somebody, a man called Otto and Riches. Uh, we will all be tuning in or heading to the big screen in right now or maybe in the new year. But thanks for bringing us all of that, Ashanti. That's Ashanti Omkar. And uh, that's all we've got time for. It's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb and our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time with me. I'm Guy Delaunay. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>